Hi, everyone. Just before we get going, I want to remind you that everything we talk about and discuss should not be considered as investment advice. The purpose of what we talk about on Catherine Murray Media and Markets on YouTube, as well as Catherine Murray in conversation with on my podcast, should be viewed as informational and entertainment purposes only. Please definitely do your own research, your own homework, and definitely consult an investment professional before making any investment decisions. And also to note, some of us might hold positions in some of the stocks uh, that we discuss. Um, Mark, great to be able to catch up with you. There's um, obviously a lot going on in the market, even as we look today. Uh, you know, a lot of things are working, whether it's value growth, you've got the U.S. 10-year yield lower once again, following U.S. Fed Chair Jerome Powell last week. I think that is somewhat perplexing to people. Uh, and of course, your focus as EVP um, of ETF strategy over at Horizons, um, you know, you got a big macro perspective and also ideas and strategies in terms of how to navigate these markets, which feel good, but we also know that valuations are high. So a lot there. Right. Um, but, but let me start with, with, um, with your view first on, the, uh, on that U.S. 10-year yield. Yeah, I mean, we definitely see it pulling back a little bit. I think it was hitting a high of close to 170 a couple of weeks ago. It's dropped down to about 1.43. Uh, it's hard to really know where the range is, but it sort of seems that it's kind of got a range between 1.35 and sort of 1.7. Uh, I think a lot of that has to do, obviously, with there's an inflationary view with the fact that globally prices are going up. Uh, and you're seeing that really reflected in energy prices and commodity prices uh, because we've got just unprecedented amount of stimulus working its way through the, the global market that has to go somewhere. And a lot of it is being allocated as we see global demand come on, is being allocated to uh, price assets. Interest rates really haven't followed suit. And what's interesting is, is that's because if you talk to a lot of fixed income strategists, they really look at the 2% rate on the 10-year as your danger zone. And so once you hit 2%, your, your cost of funding uh, starts to, you know, really offset the benefits of this stimulus, which means that you can end up, you know, it's kind of counterintuitive, but you can end up with a, almost a deflationary environment if you have rates go above that level. So it's kind of a song and dance that we're seeing where the market seems to want to kind of play down towards like the 1.35, but then they get kind of a little bit spooked when we get to 1.75. You'd probably need some sort of major macroeconomic shock, like the Fed starting to taper directly uh, or talk about rising rates, which probably aren't going to happen for a couple of years, before you start to see things move beyond that sort of 2% rate. So it is an interesting time. Um, Longer yeah. duration bonds, of course, uh, sorry, mid duration bonds, we're seeing a lot more spike in. So things like the five year seem to be moving a little bit more volatile, especially in Canada, which is more impacting investors because most duration bond portfolios are sort of in that mid range area. Right. They've been um, a lot of people, a lot of strategists have been suggesting to, if you're going to be owning bonds, to do it on the short duration side. Right. With rates spiking, the price or value of those bonds are going down. If, right. if in fact, you know, you own a bond fund, you might be seeing that in your monthly statement, correct? Yes, absolutely. It's actually been one of the worst years and probably since the financial crisis to be a bond investor for that very reason um, that the, the, you know, you're really in sort of negative two, 3% returns for most fixed income. And that's kind of a year's worth of yield. So you've had a great run up in the equity market, but it's actually been, uh, a fairly disappointing year in fixed income, unless, of course, you've been in that short duration area, which hasn't moved very much, or you've been in interest rate um, protected areas like Canadian preferred shares, for example, which have rallied on rising interest rates because their yield goes up as interest rates rise. 
Right. Um, so then given your position, uh, and it's been a difficult year for bond investing, right. um, talk to us a little bit about what you're thinking and how you're employing capital. Um, and, and people should recognize as well that, you know, in a lot of these mandates, um, you know, you are being paid to invest. Um, but at the same time, too, I think that there's been recognition over the past decade or 15 years or so that that's not always a good idea, you know, to be fully invested. So I want to hear a little bit about that. But um, but why don't we first start with the type of products that you actually manage, which are ETFs. Everybody's right. heard about them. Not everybody knows what they actually are. Yeah, well, ETF stands for Exchange Traded Funds. So I work at Horizons ETFs. We're the fourth largest ETF provider in Canada. We run about $20 billion in uh, ETF assets. Uh, and the vast majority, when we're talking about fixed income, the vast majority of ETFs are invested in index uh, solutions. So really what they are is they're passively managed uh, index buckets where, uh, that are usually tranched by whatever exposure someone's looking for. So if they want high yield bonds, they're generally in a high yield bond index, or they're in, they want broad investment grade bonds. They're in an index product that would have a passively managed portfolio of like the 1200 issuances of investment grade bonds in Canada above sort of triple B. Um, so that's where a lot of the money is in Canada in that area. And, and it's certainly at our firm, we have a lot more money in actively managed fixed income products. So those would be products that are managed by a manager, but even fixed income managers, they work a little bit different than you would with a traditional equity strategy in that they're not trying to beat the benchmark by like four or 500 basis points. They're trying to beat it by like 30 or 50 basis points. So a active or index, whatever type of fixed income ETF you have, they tend to kind of move in tandem uh, for whatever that asset class exposure is uh, uh, in that area. So that's so that's kind of a framework we're at. So we have quite a bit of money in fixed income ETFs at Horizons, probably got about $5 billion roughly in fixed income assets, closing in maybe more than $6 billion. And uh, most of that is in active, and we have about another $1.5 billion in uh, a large index product that just trades the broad uh, Canadian investment-grade bond universe. And just so our viewers understand as well, why would they buy um, a fixed income ETF versus a mutual fund ETF and or just buy the bonds to the broker? Well, that's that's the key, right? Where they've so, been so successful with ETFs here in Canada. Fixed income ETFs are big business in Canada specifically. So we're roughly 30%, it was as high as 33% at one point in time, but roughly 30% of the asset center management in Canada, so that is the all the money invested in ETFs, is in fixed income ETFs, where if I look at the global average, it's probably closer to like 11 or 12%, maybe a little bit more, but it's roughly twice the global average. Uh, I used to, I usually joke it's because Canadians like to overpay for cell phones, real estate and bonds. Um, but that's really, you know, at the crux of what it is, is that we don't have a very large fixed income market here in Canada, and it's tightly controlled by six major dealers, which, you know, are household names, the Canadian banks. And so what ends up happening is that tightly controlled uh, dealer market, which we refer to as the over-the-counter market because bonds don't trade on an exchange, it creates a lot less price transparency and liquidity than you would typically get in a large developed market like the United States. So that results in huge amounts of cost for investors historically to invest in bonds. So Canadian investors have really embraced fixed income ETFs because what fixed income ETF does, and this is really important, is it takes a bond and makes it trade like a stock. So right. once, you put it, once you put a bond in an ETF, now it has you know, a daily price, 
It has a bid ask spread that you can track. You can see what the uh, outstanding volume is and interest is in that ETF. And so it really creates a pricing mechanism that allows investors to have a lot more clarity and comfort with what they're trading and trading alongside their equity in their portfolio. And that kind of invention has been huge for Canadian investors trying to navigate, which has historically been a very liquid and very expensive marketplace. Right. And I think it also probably gives the retail investor institution, um, definitely institution, a lot of control in terms of, you know, if they see something going on from a macro perspective picture right. and they want out, uh, you know, they're able to get out because it is a traded exchange traded ETF um, as, as opposed to even with a mutual fund and you have to wait for the redemption period. Exactly. Exactly. And you hit the nail on the head with that. And that's that's the key part. In fact, we've seen circumstances where certain ETFs in the United States, for example, like high yield bond ETFs, some of the majority of ownership at certain periods would actually be institutions that are shorting that as a liquidity sleeve because they actually can't sell their other high yield bonds that they hold because they're effectively a liquid. So this is where ETFs have really changed the dynamics of fixed income investing because they do create that daily trading and liquidity for investors to get in and out of what has historically been an extremely hard uh, asset class to access. Yeah, and, and just by way of background um, and, and to bring people to where we are in 2021, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I remember when I was back at Goldman on the institutional equity sales desk, um, you know, in 2002, 2001, that how the ETFs were actually used then, and this shows you the development of them right. over these years, is that it was big money managers who they were getting so much money flowing into their funds every day, and they didn't even want to wait till the next morning to deploy it in whatever single stock ideas they had. So they just plowed it into an S&P 500 ETF or a sector ETF. That, that's kind of the origination of all of this. It really is. Yeah, that's that's exactly it. We call it, uh, you know, equitization trade, uh, the ability to make a quick trade in the portfolio. And for fixed income, uh, it's profound. So, you know, if you took something like preferred shares, which is a type of fixed income instrument, if I try to trade like $200,000 of that as an individual issuance, even a large issuance like an RBC, my bid ask spreads, so when I'm talking about bid ask spread, that'd be the sort of commission charge to trade that would, could be as high as like 20 cents. But if that same issuance is in an ETF that has, you know, a billion dollars of natural flow, now that ETF is trading one or two cents wide. So to your point, if I'm an institution that needs to really change my asset allocation um, and I'm running billions of dollars, I could be spending you know, hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars in trading commission to get in and out of these individual positions or take a big haircut on them if I have to sell them. Where if you're in the ETF, there is a lot more natural engendered liquidity for those ETFs to allow you to get in and out. Um, so the origination of the S&P 500 and the, and the spiders, as you highlighted, yeah. that was really the genesis there. And now we kind of see that be the stock and trade with the uh, fixed income ETFs these days. Yeah. And, and now we have so much available, so much choice. You know, you still as an individual investor or your broker or your PM, and, uh, you know, pension fund, whatever. You still have to make the right call in terms of where you think you're going to get the best return. Right. Um, and there's always new products coming out. So I actually want to talk about a couple of your products, which are really focused on um, sustainable investing, ESG investing, green bond investing. Um, talk to us a little bit about how that's looking these days, because they started back in 2007. Yeah. Well, the, the original, you're talking about the original green bonds starting back in yeah. 2007 from the ECB. Uh, I mean, there really was no movement on green bonds, I'd say, until uh, about two years ago. I guess I should reframe it. When we're talking about a green bond, we're specifically talking about a bond that's issued by an institution like a government agency or a supranational institution like the European Investment Bank, or we're talking about a corporation. 
issuing a bond and in the covenants of that bond, remember bonds are a specific type of debt instrument, they guarantee that the money will be used for environmental sustainability uh, projects or funding. So there's a, um, an NGO group called the Climate Bonds Initiative. They're, they're based in Europe and they basically track and make sure that all these bonds that are issued as green bonds meet certain criteria that the issuance of the bond money is going into sustainable projects. Now, the reason it's been so, so slow to catch on is ESG and RI investing really hasn't captured the imagination of retail investors, okay? And, and if you look at what retail investors are buying these days, things like cryptocurrencies and, and you know, technology stocks and, and meme stocks and things that really interest them that are making money, uh, but the institutional world has really shifted towards more sustainable investing because a lot of these are public institutions that have very strong criteria to meet with, with their, what we call their investment policy statement to meet uh, demand that money from plan members is going towards sustainable, uh, sustainable or responsible investment initiatives. And that's really been a movement of sort of the last three or four years where we've seen a lot more activism by you know, unions and trade groups and particularly in Europe, but it's now come to North America where there's a demand by, by, to have for pensions in particular to invest in these types of uh, sustainable equities and sustainable fixed income. So with that kind of cultural shift at the institutional level, there's a huge demand for green bonds now because they have these stringent IPS policy statements that don't allow them to invest in things like tobacco, really limit their exposure to fossil fuel producers. And so they love green bonds uh, because that allows them to have that broad exposure to you know, large corporations, but it also allows them to meet their IPS standards. So we've seen a huge, huge demand for green bonds where there's now over a trillion dollars in issuances um, but it's still a long way to go because they still only represent about 1% of the global fixed income market, whereas the outstanding pool of assets, which are these large institutions buying green bonds, they probably you know, have to buy a lot more than 1% of their green bonds to get that sort of direct allocation to what their, you know, their uh, guidelines are for their investing. Yeah, and, and so um, there's a lot there to unpack. Um, yeah. and, and what I want to understand a little bit more, though, is... Um, the size of the market. So you said about a trillion dollars in issuance. Put that into perspective in terms of the amount of bond issuance globally. So, yeah, well, but, well, there's, about, there's, about, there's about 128 <laughs> trillion, about 128 trillion in debt globally. So like, of, of corporate and institutional issuances. So you're you're roughly like a, a little bit less than one percent in terms of what so, green bonds are at. Right. And and, and to, to recap for one second here again, the green bonds, yeah. the funds that they get that the company will receive by issuing these bonds must be used for sustainable environmental purposes, correct? That's absolutely correct, yes. So, so how, how do you, I, I guess a couple of things, like how challenging is it to be a money manager in that when the, the size is so small and obviously a company, they're gonna issue some bonds, but they need those bonds for CapEx and so many other aspects as well. Right. I mean, how, how big do you see this and how difficult is it and what's the pricing like on those bonds if there's limited supply? That, well, that's the thing. It, it, that's why it's it's extremely attractive if I can issue into green bond because I get what I call a greenium, which is uh, you know a, a little bit of a pun, but you're getting a green premium for them to give them less yield because they want the bond so badly. So every single one of these institutional bond deals by investment grade green bond issuances is almost overly oversubscribed. Usually, it's three to four times. And again, when we talk about bonds. It's over the counter and the original buyers of bonds are almost overwhelmingly money managers and institutions. If they have a mandate to buy environmentally sustainable bonds, they, they, they're going to buy whatever's out there. So 
RBC, we'll use our Canadian example, which is a leading green bond issuer in Canada. I think they did a $750 million deal over the summer. And it was like 1.15% yield for five years, which is like a pittance relative to the corporate bond market. That was completely oversubscribed. So if I'm RBC, I love this because I'm getting really good funding. Uh, at a low rate, and I'm probably lending out that money anyways to companies to do like retrofitting and and sustainable, uh, you know, reinvestment. So I'm lending it out anyways, and now I'm I'm getting it at a much lower rate. So you have a lot of financial institutions that love doing this, and then you have other sort of um, issuers that love doing it. Like you know, one of the largest issuers is is uh, in in our ETF, which is a green bond ETF uh, ticker symbol HGGB, is uh, is Clayton International. And it, Canadians wouldn't know Clave International, but they're one of the largest box manufacturers, cardboard box manufacturers in, uh, in, in Europe. And so what they do is they use all that money for the reforestation efforts that they're kind of being financially and governmentally pr- uh, from gov- regulatory pressure to reforest. So they're using all that money for reforestation. And so again, it's a great source of funding for them to put out a green bond there. So those are the sorts of things that are there. And to your original question, the demand from money managers is so overwhelming because of, you know, especially if they're public institutions, they're, you know, they're, they're interested in returns, but they also have social and political pressure. They're just going to subscribe to these of whatever's available, which means these bonds traded a fairly significant premium relative to a bond that wouldn't meet that green standard. Wow. So um, just as an example, and maybe this is a little bit too in the weeds, but if you're, you know, if they're getting a 1.1%, uh, and, and people yeah. are supposed to get their bonds back at par, so 100, what are these yeah. bonds being priced at? Well, usually I think they're priced at about uh, usually at the $100 uh, maturity value, right? So then the 1.15% yield would be what they're paid. And then if, if, if yields back up, they'll probably go over that $100 issuance price. Um, okay. and, they and are issued a premium. At a, they're yeah. issued at 100 I Usually I believe they are. I, you okay. Don't quote me on that. I, okay. I, I usually look at the yield, not the, not the issuance price. Okay. I'm just always yeah. curious because I'm trying to, you know, I look at that compared to how other things are trading and uh, right. the price you have to pay always. So, yeah, um, yeah. but, uh, but okay. So, uh, and, and tell me a little bit about how Pepsi and Apple are involved in this. I think it's interesting to hear the real life examples of, of what's going on. And, and it was also really interesting for you to kind of connect the dots in terms of, you know, the RBC issues and they use that money to lend to environmental. Right. Um, it's really kind of connecting the dots for us. Well, um, Apple uses it to for R and D. So, you know, they're using, I believe, like solar energy and renewable infrastructure for some of their uh, large scale like um, operations out in California. So, again, for that retrofit, they they lent out a large amount of money in that regard to cover that. Uh, Pepsi and Coca Cola. I noticed Coca Cola has an issue inside of Mexico, and Pepsi has an issue. Uh, a lot of it is on recycling. Right. And they're going to be doing this anyways. I mean, you know, probably no surprise to those listening. There's still capitalism 101 here. So if they're going to be uh, engaged in large scale recycling and there's a hard line cost to that, then why don't I issue a bond at $750 million that covers that and it's a cheaper source of financing. So that's, yeah. that's the kind of uh, thing that's being done there. A lot of, you know, and I'm being a little bit pedantic there, but a lot of the, a lot of the, a lot of the you know issuances being used for a lot of retrofitting and infrastructure development uh, to you know retrofit buildings and and create you know facilities and investments that meet like low carbon standards. So hotels, for example, are another big area where a lot of hotels use it to retrofit um, their 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 resorts and whatnot, um, so their energy footprint, their carbon footprint. 
extremely costly to meet certain levels of standard there, but then they use the funding to do that and then they get regulatory uh, credits with governments, local governments for doing that. So all in, in, in the end, you know, it ends up being kind of profitable for all parties involved at the current juncture while there's a limited supply of these bonds. Under, understood. Um, and what kind of returns could uh, viewers uh, expect to see in your in this fund? Well, that's, the that's the rub, right? <laughs> There's still fixed income. So they don't magically eliminate what we talked about at the start, which is the ability for uh, interest rates to go up, which brings down the prices. So you basically what you'll get with these green bonds is you'll probably get slightly better per a slightly better performance, assuming you're bought at a reasonable price at the ETF or the, or the bonds versus an investment grade bond, but they're not going to eliminate things like duration risk, like HGGB still has a five point five and a half year duration. So for every 1% rise in interest rates, I'm going to lose 5% on that. And the credit risk still exists with the issuer. So they're funding it off their balance sheet. So, yeah. you know, the, all of your traditional uh, approach to bonds has to apply to a green bond because it's still funded the same way. It still has the same interest rate risk. The only real difference is you probably, depending on where demand goes for these bonds, you might get a bit more of a premium for them relative to other kinds of corporate bonds or investment grade bonds because of the overwhelming demand for that specific type of bond. Got it. And, um, and just real brief here, give us the 101 on the um, ESG corporate bond fund. Yeah, the one on the ESG corporate bond fund is just that there's not a lot of ESG coverage in Canadian bonds. So we launched a Canadian corporate bond product. Um, we saw there were some gaps in how like third party firms look at that. So this is an active manager who's actually individually going through every single Canadian fixed income issuance and finding ones that have, you know, through qualitative and quantitative analysis, finding companies that are in the top tier, a uh, top you know, tier of of uh, ESG standards, which is more than environmental. That's also sustainability and governance. Again, there's more demand for issuances that are good corporate citizens. This is a, an active strategy trying to identify those. And, and what's the size of that market versus the green bond market? Well, quite a bit larger because that's the entire corporate bond fixed income market. Fair so point. That one <laughs> yeah. you're just trying to, that one you're trying to slice and dice yourself and then make yeah. a case. So it's not limited supply. But again, we might see those bonds start to trade at more of a premium. Uh, we're certainly seeing equities and bonds trade at more of a premium if there's sustainable corporate practices in place. And that's yeah. likely to continue, especially as institutions move to more towards this type of investing. Got it. And, and Mark, just going to wrap it up here. Oh, first of all, what's the ticker on that one? That one is H-A-E-B. Okay. H-A-E-B. And the other one was H-G-G-B. G-B. Okay. Yeah. Um, and just to kind of wrap it up here, what, what do you think retail investors need to know or think about as it relates to um, the interest rate environment and also how it applies to ETFs? You brought that up before we started. Yeah, this is, you know, you, you brought it up really well. I think being short duration is sort of the easiest risk-free trade right now for investors in the fixed income market. There's a lot of risk in the fixed income market right now relative to where it has been historically. And the reason there's a lot of risk is, you know, your risk hasn't changed with bonds, but you're being compensated so little for those bonds that you're not getting the compensation you once did. So, you know, a 4% yield five years ago, I could get with a triple B bond. 4% yield now, that's basically like a single B, triple C bond. That's a non-investment grade junk bond. So my risk has completely changed, but the income needs for investors have not changed. So one of the things that they need to look at doing is probably shortening the duration to eliminate a lot of that interest rate risk 
take that lower amount of risk and maybe reallocate that to things like dividend paying stocks uh, or other types of uh, investments where they can get that higher yield. Um, so retail has a little bit more of a challenge than an institution because you have an income need. You probably have a three to four percent income need, which isn't yeah. a lot of money when you think about it. Like if you have a million dollar portfolio, that's only thirty, forty thousand dollars a year. So where do I get that from? And probably one of the best ways to do that is to protect your risk because you need bonds to protect you in the case of a market crisis. And maybe, but maybe go ultra low risk on your bonds and increase your income from riskier assets. So your portfolio risk is the same, but at least you'll get a higher yield to fund whatever your income needs is. So that's a conversation I've certainly been having a lot with retail advisors and investors. Okay, yeah, and it, it, has, it has been, and obviously it continues to be such a difficult environment, you know, particularly, you know, to come full circle, you see that U.S. 10-year yield, you hear Fed Chair Jerome Powell last week saying that they're going to taper, but, you know, rates are probably a long way off, so the U.S. 10-year yield's down to 1.4. It's, exactly. it's pretty amazing, and, it, and it's maybe Goldilocks, at least for now, for the equity markets, and you know, but then that pushes you up the risk curve. So it's definitely not an easy environment. No, no, <laughs> but you're the money manager. Yeah, well, not really manage, managing money as much as trying to find, you know, people, money managers help with ETF solutions. But yeah, I get what you're saying. Yeah, it, it, it. it's incredibly challenging. I'd say this is the hardest market for, to generate a reliable total return that I've actually had in my career, which is about 12 years. So it, it's, wow. it's a tough one. Yeah. Okay, Mark, we're going to leave it on that note. Thank you so much for joining me today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you.